Well, good morning, everyone. Uh, yeah, my name is Joe, um, and it's my pleasure to be taking us through the start of a new series this morning. Um, as you'll probably have picked up uh, from the last few weeks, our sense has been uh, that God's wanting us to consider and rediscover one particular aspect of what it means to be church. Uh, there are lots of different uh, pictures and descriptions of how to understand what the church is in the Bible. We read uh, of the church being the body of Christ as one body with many parts. Uh, we read of the church as a bride uh, with Jesus as the bridegroom. Um, and here we've often tended to emphasize church as family, uh, which is good and right and has helped to nurture a feeling of safety and security for us as a body. We don't take this for granted um, and are thankful for all that we have been able to explore and put into practice about what it means that church is family. I feel a bit echoey and boomy. How's... He's working on it. Cool. <laughs> Unless it's just me, perhaps I'm just echoey and boomy. <laughs> Okay, so, uh, so in this next season, anyway, our sense has been, uh, following a prophetic word brought by Caleb back uh, in the early summer, that God is wanting us to pursue what it means that the church is an army, uh, and emphasize this through this coming series, uh, the biblical image of church as army. But if there are lots of names and descriptions for what the church is in the Bible, there are even more for Jesus himself, uh, far more, in fact. The Bible tells us that Jesus is Lord, he's Saviour, Redeemer, the Son of God, the Son of Man, the Messiah, the Cornerstone, the Light of the World, the Good Shepherd, the Chief Shepherd, the Holy One of God, the Bread of Life, the Beloved, the Alpha and Omega, the Beginning and the End, the Resurrection and the Life, the Way, the Truth and the Life, the Gate or the Door, the Almighty, our High Priest, a Prophet, a Rabbi or Teacher, the Word, the Lamb of God, the Mediator, the Rock, the True Vine, the Bridegroom, the Head, the Master, the Judge, and God with us, and I could go on. But as part of this idea of church as army, we're going to be exploring and keep bringing it back to who is in command of that army. Because another important truth about Jesus, alongside all those other glorious realities is that he is the king. So it's the king and his army. When we were planning this out, we had no idea, of course, uh, quite how much there would be in the news and the media and in the life of this nation at the moment around a king and royalty. Um, and to be honest, I'm not sure if that's going to be helpful for us uh, or not this morning. The reality is that there will be a range of attitudes here uh, to the establishment of the monarchy, and it's not for me to unpick that. I think the main thing to say is that with respect to our ancient institutions and traditions, with the utmost respect and a fondness for um, Her Majesty Queen Elizabeth and praying every blessing for our new King Charles, constitutional monarchy, as we know it, bears little to no resemblance to the Bible's idea of kingdom and the king. Our focus this morning is on the reign of his majesty, King Jesus. So we're going to look at what the Bible has to say about Jesus as king. So we're going to jump right in at the deep end in Matthew's gospel in the New Testament, uh, in Matthew 26, uh, where Jesus has been put on trial by the Jewish religious authorities. So if you're familiar with the life of Jesus, this section is right at the end of his ministry. Uh, he's been arrested uh, and was put on trial before being crucified. 
And it all kind of comes to a head in verse 63, when the high priest says to Jesus, I charge you under oath by the living God, tell us if you are the Messiah, the Son of God. So up to this point, Jesus has been traveling around preaching about the kingdom of God, which we'll come to in a couple of weeks, healing the sick and working miracles, which is all well and good. But he's also been confronting the religious authorities for their hypocrisy, the burdens of their religious life, and their distortion of the Old Testament law. Because of all that, the high priest here doesn't really believe that Jesus can be the Messiah. But the question in itself is innocent enough. It was one of the jobs of this group called the Sanhedrin to weigh the claims of potential messiahs. The Jews were awaiting their messiah. Um, who they saw basically as a political revolutionary to rescue the Jewish people from their uh, Roman oppression. So the trial's gone on, and there have been various lines of questioning. But here, the high priest is wanting to just cut the point. Are you the Messiah or not? Verse 64. You have said so, Jesus replied, but I say to all of you, from now on you will see the Son of Man sitting at the right hand of the Mighty One and coming on the clouds of heaven. There's no easy English translation of this first phrase in the original language. The NIV and other translations um, have here, you have said so, or it is as you say, or something like that. It's kind of a way of saying, well, yes, you're not wrong, but there's way more to it than that. It's intentionally ambiguous to kind of expand the narrow thinking of the high priest and the Sanhedrin. Are you the Messiah? Well, yeah, I am, but you're really not asking a big enough question. From now on, you will see the Son of Man sitting at the right hand of the Mighty One and coming on the clouds of heaven. This is an expansion of what the high priest was asking because his understanding of who the Messiah was, and therefore who Jesus is, was completely inadequate. And you can see from um, their response that follows how inflammatory Jesus' answer was as a response. It says, Then the high priest tore his clothes and said, He has spoken blasphemy. Why do we need any more witnesses? Look, now you have heard the blasphemy. What do you think? He is worthy of death, they answered. The Messiah as a political revolutionary is one thing, but this is blasphemy. So what is it about Jesus' response that caused that reaction? So in saying this, in saying from now on you will see the Son of Man sitting at the right hand of the Mighty One and coming on the clouds of heaven, he's drawing from two passages in the Old Testament Psalm 110 and Daniel chapter 7, and applying them to himself. So Psalm 110 opens with this. Psalm 110 of David, so that's the great giant slaying King David from Israel's history. A psalm. The Lord says to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies a footstool for your feet. So this describes God's empowerment of a superior descendant of King David, being invited to sit at God's right hand and rule over all creation. And the psalm goes on to kind of unpack that. 
And in his response to the high priest, Jesus applies that to himself because he says, you will see the Son of Man sitting at the right hand of the Mighty One. And Son of Man was actually Jesus' favorite title for himself throughout the Gospels. Um, And that comes from Daniel chapter 7. Daniel chapter 7 from verse 13 says, In my vision at night I looked, and there before me was one like a Son of Man, coming with the clouds of heaven. He approached the Ancient of Days, as God, and was led into his presence. He was given authority, glory, and sovereign power. All nations and peoples of every language worshipped him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion that will not pass away, and his kingdom is one that will never be destroyed. So we have divine authority, glory, sovereign power, an everlasting kingdom, and the worship of all people everywhere. The clouds here symbolize like the manifestation of the kingdom and glory of God. So throughout the Bible, you get a pillar of cloud that led the Israelites out of slavery in Egypt. Uh, when the Ark of the Covenant was brought in, the, uh, a cloud filled the temple, so the priests couldn't uh, even stand in there and minister. A voice came from a cloud at the transfiguration of Jesus, when his closest disciples saw his glory. He was covered by a cloud at his de- uh, ascension after the resurrection. And he's prophesied to be coming in a cloud with power and great glory and judgment when he returns. So when you read of clouds in the Bible and the clouds of heaven here in Daniel, don't think like riding on a cumulus, like a kind of damp magic carpet, (laughs) but a visible, it's always bothered me that image, but a visible manifestation of the glory of God. And this is why Jesus is accused of blasphemy. If you've ever asked the question, where does it say in the Bible that Jesus is God? Because it doesn't tend to use the plain language that we sometimes expect. This is one of those places. In drawing from these two passages and applying them to himself, he's claiming divine identity, authority, and the right to be worshipped. He is the king. The high priest asked if he was the Messiah, and it's like Jesus laughs and says, you have no idea who you're dealing with. So the first question I want to ask this morning is, do you have an adequate view of King Jesus? He draws from these two passages in the Old Testament to show that he's not to be thought of as a political messiah or just a moral teacher or a compassionate do-gooder or even merely a prophet of God. He is the divine king who receives the kingdom of God and is exalted high above even the great King David from Israel's history. And this has been where it's all been leading through the gospel narrative, the prophet, the healer, the miracle worker, the Messiah. And now the fullness of Jesus' revelation to the Jewish authorities here that he is the divine king of kings and lord of lords. And from now on, as it says in Matthew, he will no longer be seen imprisoned, under false trial, with false witness, and a false justice, but will be seen as the undisputed, majestic King Jesus, 
Lord, God, Saviour and King, at the right hand of God in all glory and power. But the road to this exaltation, as has already been said this morning, was one through humiliation and crucifixion with a crown not of gold, but a crown of thorns. Hebrews 12, verse 2 says, For the joy set before him, so that's his exaltation and ascension to the right hand of God as the glorious king of a redeemed church, the army of God, for the joy set before him, he endured the cross, scorning its shame, and sat down at the right hand of the throne of God, which is another reference to Psalm 110, which is kind of peppered throughout the New Testament. Scorning the shame, despising it, disregarding it, not using his kingship for his own advantage, but for the joy set before him enduring the cross. This great king lays down his own life for his people, gladly bearing our burdens. No one has authority over the king. He laid down his life for us of his own accord. So what does it mean that Jesus is king? What, what difference does that make? Well, because Jesus is king, I'm not the Lord of my life. So all my hopes and dreams, ambitions, expectations, frustrations, disappointments, discontentments are to be brought to the feet of Jesus and surrendered to the king. I'm not the Lord of my life because Jesus is king. Because Jesus is king, the future is in his hands and not mine. This means there is hope to be held with humility, trusting God as he works out his purposes in our lives. The future is in his hands, not mine, because Jesus is king. Because Jesus is king, sin doesn't have the last word. The king had authority to lay down his life, to pay the price for my sin and yours and authority to take up his life again in victory to set the captives free. Sin doesn't have the last word because Jesus is king. Because Jesus is king, the spiritual forces of evil have been disarmed. So if you're doing the Bible reading plan through Mark at the moment, um, as part of one of our practices to feed on God daily, you'll have read this week about a demon-possessed man who when he approached Jesus cried out, what do you want with us, Jesus of Nazareth? Have you come to destroy us? I know who you are, the Holy One of God. And Jesus casts out the demon, and the people are amazed, saying, what is this? A new teaching and with authority. He even gives orders to impure spirits, and they obey him. The spiritual forces of evil have been disarmed because Jesus is king. Because Jesus is king, reconciliation is possible between conflicted people and contrasting ideologies. Have you ever thought about the tension in the relationships between some of Jesus' apostles? How about these two? Matthew, the tax collector, and Simon, the zealot. There were two Simon, Simon Peter and Simon, the zealot. So tax collectors were collaborators with the Romans. They were Jewish people employed by the Romans to collect a poll tax and customs duties on the roads. They transferred an amount to the Roman authorities, but they kept plenty for themselves, and there was a lot of corruption. 
So Matthew was a tax collector. Simon, on the other hand, was a zealot. The zealots were essentially a terrorist group of assassins, basically. They would target Roman officials and collaborators with violent acts to stir uprisings and other civil disobedience. On paper, Matthew and Simon are complete enemies. One a collaborator with the Roman authorities, one a violent terrorist against the Roman authorities. But coming under the reign of King Jesus, turning from their old ways of living, they have reconciliation, friendship and brotherhood. Reconciliation is possible between conflicted people and contrasting ideologies because Jesus is king. So what's required of us now? In the Old Testament, uh, the prophet Isaiah had a vision. Isaiah in chapter 6 says, I saw the Lord, high and exalted, seated on a throne, and the train of his robe filled the temple. Above him were seraphim, each with six wings. With two wings they covered their faces, with two they covered their feet, and with two they were flying. And they were calling to one another, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord Almighty. The whole earth is full of his glory. At the sound of their voices, the doorposts and thresholds shook, and the temple was filled with smoke, like a cloud. Woe to me, I cried. And the Hebrew here is like utter anguish. No way out, game over. Woe to me, I am ruined. For I am a man of unclean lips, and I live among a people of unclean lips, and my eyes have seen the King, the Lord Almighty. And it says in John's Gospel here that Isaiah is seeing Jesus on the throne, the glory of King Jesus, and speaking about him. And coming into the presence of King Jesus, he suddenly becomes aware of his sin. Woe to me, I am ruined. Because by our nature, we are sinful. We don't deserve to come into the king's presence. We don't deserve to come to God as children, and we don't deserve to serve in his army. But what does God do? In verse 6, Then one of the seraphim flew to me with a live coal in his hand, which he had taken with tongs from the altar, With it he touched my mouth and said, See, this has touched your lips. Your guilt is taken away and your sin atoned for. God takes away our sin. Remember, the king laid down his own life to pay the price for our salvation and set the captives free. Our guilt is taken away. Our sin is atoned for. And we are free to serve the king in obedience and dependence. We can approach God's throne of grace with confidence, as it says in Hebrews. So my second question this morning, the first question was, do you have an adequate view of King Jesus? The second question, do you have the confidence to approach the king this morning? To draw near to the throne with confidence. Confident we may receive mercy and find grace to pledge our allegiance to the king. My sense this morning is that I need to do that afresh. To come before the king once more and pledge my allegiance to him. To lay down my life before him and surrender to his will. 
So if we can uh, have the band back up as well. If, at this point, maybe you'd like to join me. Um, I'm going to kneel. You can kneel if you're able and comfortable to do that. You can stand or you can remain seated. But as we start out on this series, let's devote ourselves to our King, the Lord Jesus. So I'm going to do this now if you want to join in. If not, it'll just be me and I'm fine with that. Revelation 19, yeah, verses 11 to 16 says, I saw heaven standing open, and there before me was a white horse whose rider is called Faithful and True. With justice he judges and wages war. His eyes are like blazing fire, and on his head are many crowns. He has a name written on him that no one knows but he himself. He's dressed in a robe dipped in blood, and his name is the Word of God. The armies of heaven were following him, riding on white horses and dressed in fine linen, white and clean. Coming out of his mouth is a sharp sword with which to strike down the nations. He will rule them with an iron scepter. He treads the winepress of the fury of the wrath of God Almighty. On his robe and on his thigh, he has this name written, King of Kings and Lord of Lords. So King Jesus, we want to come before you this morning. We want to approach your throne with confidence, Lord. Confidence in your grace and your mercy. We thank you, Lord, that you are king and not us. We thank you that we can surrender our lives before you now. Free to serve you.